Okay, you guys, I want to talk to you now about irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity, you guys, I think this is a devastating argument that we can use. I think it's very effective to use it out on the street. And what I would do is, let's say you're going to meet with somebody who's a proclaimed atheist or they believe in macroevolution, perhaps meet with somebody at an Embers or a, or a Perkins or whatever type of restaurant you go to and sit down with them with a piece of paper and I would, you can even take what I have in this lecture, and you can sit down with them and show them what irreducible complexity, how it negates the possibility of macroevolution being true. Okay? Now, let me talk about irreducible complexity. Let me define it so we all understand what we're talking about here. This is what Michael Behe wrote in his book, Darwin's Black Box. He said this. He says, It was once expected that the basis of life would be exceedingly simple, that expectation has been smashed. Vision, motion, and other biological functions have proven to be no less sophisticated than television cameras and automobiles. There are compelling reasons, based on the structure of the systems themselves, to think that a Darwinian explanation for the mechanism's life will forever prove elusive. Let me tell you why this is the case. In Darwin's day... Again, he knew that he had a theory, but he didn't have any evidence for the theory. In Darwin's day, he thought that all of the mechanisms on the molecular level and the cellular level of life were very simple. That was his presupposition. However, with the advent of the electron microscope and the ability to look at life at the cellular level, we find that life is very, very complex. And I'm going to show you that here in a couple slides. And so what Michael Behe is saying is there is too much design at the cellular level. And if all of these components aren't together at once, life can't function at all. So let me give you the example of a mouse trap again. And this is the illustration of what irreducible complexity is. This is the kind of the analogy for this theory, okay? The mouse trap analogy. You got your mouse trap over here and you got your wood, right? And then you got yourself a holding bar. Here's the holding bar, because that has to hold down the smashing bar, right? And then you got yourself a spring. Here's the spring that loads the smashing bar. And then you've got yourself the smashing bar. So you got your spring, smashing bar, holding bar, and your wood. And by the way, I, I was a little slap happy when I was putting this together. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be cool if somebody comes in off the street for the first time and they, he, they come into this church and they hear us talking about a mouse trap? Now what you got here is you got your wood. And then you got your smashing bar. And, you know, we're just, you know, they're like, wow, I'm getting out of here, right? You know, so anyway, I thought I was really slap happy when I thought. Of it. So the, the point being behind this whole analogy is that any component missing renders the whole trap inoperable. If you take away your spring, you've got no tension on your smashing bar. And if you take away your holding bar, your smashing bar is always going to be laying down. If you take away your wood, you've got it's not it's not connected to anything. So it all has to be together at once for it to work at all. Now, what does macroevolution teach? It teaches that all of these components must have gradually come about. Well, through gradualism, you would have some of the components missing. But again, if you don't have all the components together at once, it doesn't work at all. And that's what you're going to see is the heart behind irreducible complexity. And that's what we're going to talk about now with the perfection of blood clotting. This is just one of the many things that Michael Behe gets into in his book, Darwin's Black Box. I highly recommend the book if you haven't read it. But let me describe to you uh, what he says about the perfection of blood clotting. He says, Blood clotting is very complex, intricately woven, um, consisting of a score of interdependent protein parts. 
the absence of or significant defects in any one of a number of the components causes the system to fail. Blood does not clot at the proper time or at the proper place. Okay, and again, why? Because it's irreducibly complex. If you take any component out, it ceases to work at all. Now, what I'm going to show you here is something that I would sit down with a person at Embers and just show them the majesty of blood clotting. Let me run it, run this by you, and you're going to just be amazed. This is just a riot. Okay, and by the way, let me just set the, my parameters on my screen here. What you got here is you got a line. Anything above the line are the components that we need for blood clotting, okay? What you got below the line is the trigger mechanism after you get a cut, all right? So follow me on this. What you need for blood clotting. First of all, you need something called fibrinogen. And fibrinogen is the potential clot material made of six protein chains, okay? Then you have something called thrombin. It's a protein, and during an injury, thrombin slices up pieces of fibrinogen, okay, like a saw. So this is our work saw, and it's going to cut this up, okay? Now, the problem with thrombin is it's actually in our blood system as prothrombin, an inactive form of thrombin, and you have to have it in your body that way so all the blood doesn't clot. You see what I'm saying? Because if all you had was thrombin in your body, if it existed that way, in the active form, it would just keep blood clotting going, and you would just congeal, right? So you can't have that. So it has to exist as prothrombin, all right? But if you get a cut, it has to be activated somehow. So what does that? Well, I'll say that in a minute. Now, next, you have fibrin. This is the trim protein from thrombin cutting fibrinogen, and it forms a mesh for an initial clot. So again, prothrombin has to be activated to get to thrombin, or thrombin, which is the saw, that cuts, that cuts fibrinogen and gives you fibrin, and this is the actual clot. That's the scab you see on your, on your boo-boo, okay? That's what you get, all right? Now, what you need is something to activate this whole thing, and that is a protein called Stewart factor, a protein that cleaves prothrombin, right, into thrombin, which is our saw. The, the saw cuts fibrinogen, we get fibrin, and therefore we get our clot. Now, the problem with Stewart factor is this. Stewart factor is also inactive, and it's slow. The problem with it being inactive is it, it can't initiate prothrombin into being thrombin. Does that make sense? So you need something now to activate Stewart factor. So how does this happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what happens is you get a cut. A cut occurs either on an animal or us, and you have another protein called Hageman factor. And Hageman factor sticks to the surface of cells of a wound. All right? Now, next, you have a protein called HMK that activates Hageman factor to its active form, all right? Next, you have Hageman factor converts precalacrine to active calacrine, all right? You guys all following this? Calacrine helps HMK speed up more Hageman factor. Next, Hageman factor plus HMK activate PTA, which activates convertin, all right? Now, the problem is, is convertin left in this form is also inactive, and so what needs to happen is this. Watch this. What we need is this line here. We need another trigger, and the trigger is something called tissue factor. Tissue factor is found when you have a cut. So tissue factor will be found where there's the cut, and that then activates convertin, okay? Convertin activates Christmas factor, and Christmas factor combined with another 
protein that I couldn't fit on the screen is called anti-hemophiliac. Okay, you can write that down. When Christmas factor and anti-hemophiliac combined, they activate Stewart factor. Now, what do you have when you activate Stewart factor? You're up here again. Now, Stewart factor is active, so Stewart factor can activate prothrombin, which becomes thrombin, which is our saw, which cuts fibrinogen, which gives us fibrin, which starts our, that's our clot. Isn't that cool? But there's a problem. And the problem is this. If you have a cut, Stewart factor is too slow in making prothrombin into thrombin. And in fact, if all you had was Stewart factor, your body would actually bleed to death. So what it needs is to accelerate the process. Remember, one of the problems is that it's slow. So what it needs is to have an accelerated way to cut prothrombin into thrombin. And what we find is, in fact, there's another protein called accelerin. Okay? And so accelerin will help, that's why it's called accelerin, will help accelerate stewart factor, uh, cleave prothrombin into thrombin so you don't bleed to death before your clot. The problem is, this is so beautiful, you guys, accelerin is inactive. So accelerin isn't going to do anything. Now, notice the glory of God here, you guys. This is beautiful. How does accelerin get activated? Well, thrombin actually will actually activate accelerin. And remember, as soon as Stewart factor was activated, it was cleaving some prothrombin into thrombin, And therefore, if you had some thrombin being cut, you had then some accelerin being activated. And when you have some accelerin being activated, it just starts making prothrombin cut faster. And so you get more thrombin. And therefore, you're cutting more fibrinogen. And then you get more fibrin. And then you get yourself a clot before you bleed to death. Do you see how perfect that is? And what the evolutionists, the macroevolutionists would have you believe is that that came about by chance and gradually Okay, gradually. Now, the point Michael Behe makes is if you take any one of these components away, it doesn't work. So what happened before you had prothrombin or before, before you had fibrinogen or fibrin? How did it evolve gradually? And see, this is devastating. If you can diagram this to a person that believes in macroevolution, I, I just think you win, okay? It's devastating. Now, in the back of my slides... There's actually some debate about irreducible complexity. There's, evolutionists are desperate to try to wipe this out because they know it's devastating against their case. And so there was actually a court case because intelligent design people had brought this to the courts and said, look it, we have more scientific evidence than do the evolutionists. Now, the evolutionists tried to claim that irreducible complexity is a faulted theory. And I don't have time to get into it, but there is a devastating rebuttal to the evolutionist rebuttal and I have the website linked in the back of my, my slides, okay? So it's like the last slide. And if you put that in, you will see an excellent article that will show you how irreducible complexity is not, you, you can't shoot it down. It, it's, it works every time, okay? All right. Now, we're not done yet, by the way. We have just seen the blood clotting, but now we have to stop the blood clotting because, you know what? If this thing keeps rolling, all our blood would congeal and we would die, okay? So look at more of God's perfection with me. How does blood clotting stop? Well, we've got something called antithrombin. That binds to active forms of blood clotting proteins when coming into contact with hairpin, which activates the antithrombin. Now, how do you get this protein hairpin 
to get this antithrombin working? Well, we find that hairpin is only found in undamaged cells. So any part of the body that is away from the injury would then contain the hairpin, which activates the antithrombin, which stops the, the bleeding process. Do you see what I'm saying? But there's more. There's more. There's, and I don't know how to say this, okay? Thrombomodulin or thrombomodulin, this lines the surface of the cells on the inside of the blood vessels. It binds thrombin, making it less able to cut fibrinogen and increases activation of protein C, which it destroys accelerin and antihemophilic factor. Remember, that had to connect with Christmas factor to convert Stewart factor, which cleaved the prothrombin into thrombin, which cut the fibrinogen, which gave us fibrin, which gave us our clot. Okay, and so that's how it shuts it all down. All right, isn't that beautiful? Otherwise, all our blood would congeal. This is very complex stuff. And again, how could this come about gradually? What happened before we had antithrombin? If an animal would have a cut, all of its blood would congeal. That would be it. It'd be dead. It wouldn't survive at all to reproduce anything. Life would be impossible. So you see, friends, all of these components are irreducibly complex. You take any of it out, it doesn't work at all. Now, let me show you some living examples of this irreducible complexity. Think about people that have hemophilia. Hemophilia, of course, those are people that are bleeders. Does anybody know a, a bleeder? Uh, he, somebody, do you, you do? Do they take any medication for it by chance? They do. Okay, I'd like to talk to you about that because this is interesting to me now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I might have to change my profession, but hemophilia arises from the deficiency of anti-hemophilic factor. Okay, so remember, this had to combine with Christmas factor to start to activate the Stewart factor. Remember that? To start the blood clotting process. So the point is, if you don't have that, you end up being a bleeder. And so we have people today with that disease, and they're living examples of the problem with macroevolution. They have a system that's irreducibly complex, and they're missing a component, and therefore they're oftentimes in deadly peril of, of dying because they don't have enough anti-hemophilic factor. And there's actually another cause. It's, it's called Christmas factor. Again, remember, that and that start Stewart factor, which starts the blood clotting process. This is the second most common reason for hemophilia. So again, hemophiliacs, we can point to those people and say, listen, these are examples, living examples of the theory of irreducible complexity. They don't have certain components and their blood can't clot. And if their blood can't clot, they certainly, before they had medical attention in years gone past, they, wouldn't have, they would have perished and they would have not produced offspring and therefore that trait would have died out, you see? And, and it really wipes out the possibility of macroevolution. So with that, how I would use this whole thing, again, is I would sit down with people and just show them the perfection. And I think this is glorifying to God. Um, I think about the psalmist in 139, Psalm 139, where he says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? When I saw this, you guys, I just almost had a tear in my eye thinking, wow, what a God we serve that is a genius enough to come up with something like this. This is beautiful. All right. Now, the next thing I want to cover real quickly is I want to talk to you about something I think we should be bringing up with those who hold to macroevolution, and that is the moral quandary that I think we should be putting them in. And especially, let me tell you my heart, my heart is, is when we go to colleges and we send our kids to colleges, they are in la- liberal academia, and the liberals try to get away with having the best of both worlds. They could proclaim macroevolution, and yet they're against racism. Okay, 
And that, friends, is an oxymoron. Here they are the ones who badger Christians and always tell us that we're somehow racist people, and we're not. You and I agree that all men are made in the image of God, no matter what their color. Galatians 3.28 says there's no slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, right? And so there is no room for racism in the body of Christ. Every single person has been made in the image of God. However, if you hold to the doctrine of evolution and you believe that everything came from an amoeba, and went to man, isn't it intellectually dishonest to say that all races evolved equally? Wouldn't that be intellectually dishonest? So here's what I propose. This is the question I ask. This, in fact, sometimes this is the first question I ask people who believe in macroevolution. I say, if all people groups evolved from a common single-celled ancestor, which group evolved the furthest? And if they say, well, I think they all evolved the furthest, that's pretty convenient, isn't it? Are they being intellectually honest or are they being intellectually dishonest? I think it's dishonest. And to say, well, wait, that's pretty convenient to hold to a theory that believes everything evolved randomly and it just so happens to be that all people on the planet today are of equal worth? What, 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 how did that rule come about? How, how can they be so intellectually dishonest? So let's put them in a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. Either evolution isn't true or some people groups are inferior But the only third option is this. Can it be possible that all people evolved equally? I don't think it is. Okay? So again, what does that lead them to? It leads people to the fact that unless you have a creator who gives people worth, some human beings may not be worth as much as other human beings. Okay? Let me give you an example. Every time I give a hypothetical, I like to give examples. Let me give you an example of this very doctrine. The Berlin Olympics, 1936. Adolf Hitler During that Olympics, he's angered because Jesse Owens beats the supposedly superior Aryan race. He is angry. Why? Because Jesse Owens didn't evolve as far, in his mind, as the Aryan race. He knew. He was intellectually at least honest enough. He was, you know, a murderous thug, yes. But he was intellectually honest to know what macroevolution taught. Namely, some people evolved further than other people. Now, again, I'm not claiming all macroevolutionists are racist. No. But realize, when we go into the colleges, and these people, yes, they're against racism, that's great, I'm against racism, yet they teach the very doctrines, namely macroevolution, that leads to racism. Whereas we as the Christians, our views are being excluded from the public square, but it's you and I who are consistent with the laws of logic, with the laws of science, and you and I are the ones who are saying, no, men and women are made in the image of God. Okay, And we're the ones who are being intellectually consistent. Okay, And I think we need to take this battle to academia because our views have to start being heard by our kids because our kids are perishing because of the evil, wicked ideas of macroevolution. Okay? So take, that's a little bit of my two cents, I guess. And I, now, oh, the other thing I want to do is just encourage you, and I want to open up to discussion now. Think about where we've been so far in our course. You guys have gone through a lot, and I just want to help you understand the tool belt you're building Think about it. You know the laws of logic now, and you've learned some logical syllogisms. We can prove that we can know truth. Remember, there was two types of postmoderns, the one that says truth doesn't exist and the one that says, yes, truth exists, but we don't have access to it. Remember how we defeat it? We say in both cases it violates the law of non-contradiction. How can you say that truth doesn't exist? Because you would have to say it is true, A, that truth doesn't exist, non A, at the same time in the same relationship. That's absurd. And the other one who says it's true that we don't have access to truth, right? 
Well, wait a minute. They're saying something is true that they don't have. It's true that they don't have access to truth. They're proclaiming a truth. So again, we prove that we can know truth. That's a good thing. And then we decided last week that, in fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is fact is a fact that God exists. That is a true thing. So we know truth, and now we know that God exists is true. And then we piled on today. And we refuted Darwin. The remainder of the time now that I want to spend with you in apologetics is about declaring to the world who this God is. Because there must be a God. And the question we're going to ask is, has he revealed himself? And if he has, who is he? And what you'll find, of course, the conclusion will be that it is the God of the Bible. So that's what we're going to be about the remaining five sessions. We're going to get into the scriptures, which is what I'm most excited about. So with that, I'll, I'll uh, quit yapping. And by the way, Pat, I, I want you to mention that, um, in that right away, if you could. This is so exciting, talking about uh, that Miller experiment. Yeah. And explain what that experiment is again. Okay, there is an experiment which is in, uh, still kept in a lot of textbooks about Miller who tried this controlled experiment to make amino acids to find the building blocks of life. And he, uh, as uh, Eric said, he excluded certain things from this experiment, oxygen being the main thing, because you can't make life with oxygen. We need oxygen to breathe and live, but you don't make life with oxygen so that was excluded but that's not always explained in the the textbooks but the other main thing is he did manage to create amino acids and they say well look if he he created amino acids he's got the building blocks it must be possible for the the system to work on a naturalistic setup but what they fail to tell you is There are two kinds of amino acids. There's a right-handed amino acid and there's a left-handed amino acid. And the amino acids we have in our bodies and all living creatures have in their bodies are the left-handed amino acids. He created amino acids, but he created in his test tube right-handed and left-handed amino acids. When our bodies die, folks, that's when our bodies start making right and left-handed amino acids. So what he created in his test tube was death. death. <laughs> That's great. Thank I love you, it. Pat. Yes. Yeah, they <laughs> that is beautiful. Thanks so much, Pat. Yeah. Jeremy's got one. Well, I work in a lab setting. I'm a scientist, so that's what I do for okay. my job. And What's fascinating when I'm working is because what we're commonly doing is trying to quantify certain compounds or certain amounts of, you know, blood or whatever these things. And we run through the process, and it's amazing. It comes out the way it does. Wow. It's amazing. You put all these things together, and we can consistently get what you wouldn't think possible. I mean, I just think back to biochemistry, what I took in college, the Krebs cycle. Yeah. You could use that as an example. If you have any of those parts missing, wow. you're not going to get that cycle to work. You're not going to get... And uh, free T4 cycle, the T4 cycle. I mean, out, there's thousands of cycles in the body that wow. it's just fascinating. But the sad thing is there's so many scientists who are the ones who are the vocal atheists, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. It just seems like when, I, when I'm in the lab, I'm saying, well, praise the Lord, look at, look at yeah. this. Like, how could, God, how could God have done this? It's just such 
beauty and wonder. Yeah, wow, well said. I just want to tag on to what you said. One of the problems with scientists today, you guys, is that their philosophical, logical skills are much weaker than their scientific skills. Okay, so for instance, remember our discussion about quantum physics last week? These men are brilliant when they come up with, their, when they're in their field, but realize when it comes to the logic of being able to say, can nothing do something? Can we go beyond the law of causality? Because remember, that's what they're saying with the quantum leap. All of a sudden, their philosophical skills aren't up to the task. They don't have a logic cop that stands up and says, you can't go there, right? And so a lot of our scientists are making logical errors. And um, would you find that to be one of the reasons why? In other words, they know their science really well, but their philosophical skills are lacking. And I think that's a problem. So, yeah. It seems today among educated people, if you profess that you, or if you, do, if you deny Darwinistic evolution, you are blackballed, you are seen as ridiculous, you might as well have claimed that there's a flat earth. Yeah. To them, it's just so absurd that it completely shuts down all conversation. Yeah. It doesn't refute anything you're saying, but how can we get a fair trial in this area when people have that reaction? I mean, I have that reaction on some things. I have had people say to me that there is a flat earth, and that completely shuts me down. I'm not going to pay attention to anything they say now because sure. they're their conclusion is so absurd. So yeah. I don't think it's wrong to ever do that with anything, yeah. but I don't think evolution should be one of those things, yet so many people do. Sure. In other words, they're using that as the criteria of whether or not you're someone to even listen to or... Yeah, right. They, it, they it's ruling a it litmus out test hand. to even continue the conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I think we can do is we can use arguments like these. The other thing, I'll tell you, um, my friend Jeff and I, we got into a debate with an atheist, and he is a biologist. He teaches at the University of Minnesota Morris. And we, what we did is we upstaged macroevolution. We went right to the cosmological argument, and we actually had him in the quandary, and he ended up saying that nothing could do something. Now, here's an educated man with a Ph.D. who believes in spontaneous generation. It's like believing in pixie dust. And so we were looking at these fellow atheists, and we are saying, when have you ever seen nothing do something? And if nothing can do something, have we not lost complete control of the scientific process? Because you could always attribute the cause to nothing. You lose causality. You lose causality. So the point is, is I think if we use good arguments, it, it works on them. You see what I'm saying? So we can use the cosmological argument when we realize the evolutionary the anti-evolutionary argument is is uh, not getting us anywhere. I, I always start there, but I would use all of our arguments. Oh, and the other yeah. arguments, yeah. 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 And the, the other thing to keep remembering is the truth is, is deserves to be said yeah. whether people want to hear it or not. Wow. Because God created the world the way it is. God is true. Yeah. His word is true. And truth deserves to be presented to all people yeah. whether they prefer to hear it or not. And we live in an era of absurdity. When I read in the paper that our top brilliant people and our own president are saying that carbon dioxide is a pollutant when it's a part of the very atmosphere (laughs) that God created, you might as well say nitrogen is a pollutant, oxygen is a pollutant. Okay, And these are smart people. But they might as well be brain dead because they're believing... A, a, a religious system that somehow is concocted out of a pagan worldview. And so now we have to believe that a necessary component of our atmosphere that God created yeah. that makes it possible for life to exist on planet Earth, yeah. carbon dioxide, 
is now a noxious gas wow. that we have to try to get rid of. Wow. Wow. How dumb can we be? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I just uh, wanted to know, do you have any information on how the uh, Darwinists explain uh, the one-cell development into uh, uh, male and female, that whole thing? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I how, you, I how you jump from single-cell reproduction to... Uh, I think they call it asexual reproduction. Which, or a- asexual. Yeah. And then, yeah. But somewhere in the chain, there had to be a jump to the... Uh, Having the two sexes, right? Yeah, and again, I don't, I don't know how they explain that. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I wish I. Does anybody know? Does anybody have any? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that explains everything. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get too far off course, but I am curious to ask the question about the dinosaurs because mm. I would feel that their fossil evidence is perhaps more evolved. Sure. And I just was interested to hear how you feel that that fits into this. Yeah, you know, again, I, I'd like to give you a lot of information. I don't have a lot of information on that. Let me just say this. What I, what I believe is uh, that, and again, I would have to do more research on this, but I believe that creatures like that died out because of the environment, and I would believe it's actually the global flood. And the reason why I say that is there is some um, evidence in the fossil record of, for instance, dinosaurs being with contemporaneous animals in the fossil record that we would know of today. And um, so I, I believe that we lost some of the animals in the, the global flood, the noatic flood. They just they didn't make it. But, again, I haven't done a lot of research in that. Does anybody else have any information on that? Or, um, well, well, we could just, simply, for one thing, yeah. this whole idea of selection, Yeah, you can look at, the uh, extinction of species. Yeah. yeah. We don't have any problem with the extinction of species. It's the evol- evolving of species that we say doesn't exist. Yeah, that's a good point. And so yeah. if, 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 if yeah. the environment changes for whatever reason, yeah. that certain species are not, not able to survive in that environment, yeah. and they go extinct. That's right. But that doesn't, that's no threat to the Genesis creation account. Not at all. That's right. Okay. Yep. Yep. In response to the uh, the dinosaur thing, you know, in the Bible it says a mist covered the earth, Genesis. That was before the flood, a mist had covered the earth. And then afterwards, it doesn't talk anything about that. But what, I don't know, I'm, what I've kind of like heard and like talked about is that before before the flood, it was a different atmosphere completely than what it is now. Yeah. And that a lot of the, the, the large animals that were able to survive in that atmosphere, yeah. like, you know, with the large bodies, they need a, a larger amount of um, like oxygen in their blood supply to yeah. keep it going and stuff. And I think that might have depleted, you know, post. Yeah, you may be onto something. Uh, but that's just a theory they have. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Yeah. The, we know that the hydrological cycle did start later because they had never seen rain up until Noah's time. And you're talking about the mist. The hydrological cycle was different prior to Noah. And um, in fact, remember when the rainbow is in the sky, the only way you see a rainbow is you're seeing light refracted through the prism of water droplets, right? Well, prior to the flood, obviously, I don't know if there was a rainbow or not, but it seems to indicate that it's, it's not because God puts that in the sky as a sign of the covenant, the Noahic covenant, that he would never destroy the earth again. 
And so I think you're right. There's a difference in the hydrological cycle before and after the flood. But whether that accounts to the destruction of the dinosaurs, I just I don't know. Yeah. Right. And then another point, just with the one-celled, one cell. I mean, it's it's tough to see how it would split. Yeah. But it's just tough to see how it would actually become one cell since a cell requires so many proteins. I think the minimum is about two. 150 proteins to okay. just for yeah, one I don't know cell. How it would, yeah, I don't know how it would do that either. Yeah, so. I don't know what kind of response they would have. There, there's, there's no evidence for it. <laughs> yeah. then, you know, the dinosaurs really is not an argument for evolution. No, it's not. That's right. And Yeah, that's a good point. There, that's not a problem for us at all. No, it's not our That's problem. not an issue. Yeah, that's not our yeah. problem. Okay, no, I have to comment. Yeah. Okay, so God created the world in six days. The day that he created the land animals, which I'm not great at. Is that like four or five? Okay, that's when he, no, six was, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, the day he created the land animals is when the dinosaurs would have been created that were the land ones. The day that he created the water ones would have been the sea monsters and all that. Okay, the flood happens. That's how you get fossils. Something happens very quickly, okay? They died off or they become extinct. There are other animals that have become extinct over the time. We've had even more variations based on what you see in scripture. Job speaks of behemoths. That's supposed to be representative of the dinosaurs. And yes, they made it on the ark. They had to. And it doesn't mean that they went in fully grown and mature. They could yeah. have been young. That's a very good possibility. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. You packed Some in a lot. That was good. We'll have to find out when we talk to the Lord when we get that's there. That's right. That's right. That's good. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say that I do pretty regularly at night read from a, a book that I got from the Twin City Creation Science Association oh, okay. that has a number of different um, sciences, whether it's astronomy, biology, um, fossil evidence, uh, oh, good. physics, all kinds of things, that um, they are Christians and they are speaking from their specific field of science as to how come they, believe, or they are believers. Oh, that's and great. surprisingly, where I didn't expect this at a church, but I was the other night at a church. They were studying Ephesians, and they were saying that Christians, believers, ought to be unified over the blood of Christ and salvation, hmm. and that that meant that even Christian evolutionists or Christian homosexuals or Christian everybody, hmm. that because of the blood of Christ, we ought to overlook hmm. yeah. those things. Yeah. yeah, well, of course, we can't call what God calls sin not sin, okay? So we can't violate that. We can't go against what God's word is. And that's one thing I'd like to point out is in Genesis 1, I think we have good exegetical evidence to say that when God created things, he created them with specificity. In other words, I didn't evolve from a single-celled structure, but rather God made man in his image. And we can... We can go to the mat, I think, on the fact. Now, we don't know how old the earth is. We can't, we, I don't think we can, I don't want to get into that issue. But what I'm saying is, one thing I know is that when God made the species and the different things, he made them with specificity, and he made them um, without them evolving from a single-celled or any type of ancestor. Yeah. They would have to deny that, I think, that exegesis, you know. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, we're out of time. Thanks, you guys. And next week, we're going to finally get into the scriptures now. And uh, we're going to uh, basically be looking at different worldviews, different religions. And basically, what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate all of them except Christianity. And we're going to compare the sacred scriptures and writings of different worlds' religions with the Bible. 
okay? And we're going to show where they fall short, whereas ours shines when we look at the evidence, okay? Because now what we're going to do is we say, yes, God must exist. Who is he? Okay, and that's what I'm excited about. All right.